Hi, and welcome back to the Beyond the Peloton podcast. I'm your host, Spencer Martin. I apologize for the delay between episodes. Things just got out of hand over the holidays, but I'm trying to get one of these recorded before everyone leaves for the holiday break. Um, and a little bit of exciting news. If you get a premium newsletter subscription, you now get 20% off all outdoor stages cycling products. So that is the power meters, the head units, the heart rate monitors. I just got a heart rate monitor on there. Save 20%. So you can sign up for the newsletter at beyondthepeloton.substack.com. Uh, there's a free weekly option that if you're listening to this podcast, you should 100% sign up for that. You'll enjoy that. Uh, and if you want daily coverage during Grand Tours and uh, One Day Classics, uh, you can sign up for a premium subscription. And yet now you get 20% off Stages Cycling products with that. And premium subscribers also get uh, access to like a private Discord chat and uh, three weekly uh, newsletters during non-racing weeks. So definitely head over there if you are interested. Uh, but just up top, I wanted, I wrote a newsletter on Friday about uh, Woot Van Aert and Matthew Vanderpool. I didn't realize they were racing cross this season. So road season ended like not that long ago, like five weeks ago, six weeks ago. Uh, it was an extremely compressed and intense schedule because of the COVID rescheduling. I assumed they were going to rest before starting the road season up in like the road season starts soon. Like, uh, there's major races in January, and then we have the Spring Classics starting in uh, March, like late February, March, and then the biggest race is in April. So that's a really condensed timeline. I thought for sure they would take that time to rest, but no, they're both racing cyclocross, and Matthew Vanderpool's racing pretty serious cross schedule, um, trying to win the world championships which is like in it's like the first day of february or the last day of january so basically running into the road season and then he's also doing uh, like a world cup mountain bike schedule so he can try to win the olympic mountain bike race in tokyo which is like eight days after the tour de france ends which he's also riding so it all seems really crazy so we'll talk about that a little bit later in the podcast uh, but up top, the big news is I wrote, uh, sent a newsletter out to premium subscribers this morning about this, but Woot Van Aert is rumored to be going to Ineos in 2022 when his contract with Jumbo Visma expires, uh, comes up. I don't know what the, what the correct terminology is for that. Um, comes to it and it comes to its contractual end. But this is, uh, it's reported by a legitimate journalist. Uh, so it, it's, certainly good information. This is a lot of times you see this stuff and it's just like, yeah, whatever. Finchens and Ebel, he's talking to Enios about 2024. Like that's not a real story. That's just like, why, why would Enios be interested? Why would he be interested? This is just like the, to leverage for negotiations, negotiations with this current team. But since this is like reported by an actual journalist, I would believe that there's, this isn't just, just usual off season crap. Uh, there is a possibility that he is just posturing, publicly posturing to give himself a stronger bargaining position for uh, a contract renegotiation with his current team, Yumbo Visma. This is kind of like a common tactic where he is, I bet he's not getting paid that much money. I bet he signed his contract. Let's check, actually. Yeah, so he signed a three-year contract in 2018. He was... 
I, he had almost like he was he was just a project. He was a great cyclocross rider. We didn't really know how he was going to do on the road. I'm sure he was getting paid a decent amount of money, but not like superstar money. He's possibly even making under a million dollars a year, which is crazy if you think about um, the races he wins and the work he does for that team in Grand Tours. If I was his agent, I would probably try to have the team rip up that contract right now and re-sign him on a bigger deal you know, to cover the 2021 year. So if essentially void the last year of his current contract, get him on a new deal that's paying him like something more appropriate, like four to six million dollars a year, starting like like at the end of the week, you know, at January 1st. I, th- that's my best guess as to what's going on here. Uh, there's been a lot of people, Bellow News is kind of like stoking the fear. There's like, they've had like 15 pieces about like, Woot's going to Ineos. This is the end of the sport as we know it. He's just going to ride on the front of the train for Ineos, which, uh, yeah, that would suck. I'm, I'm not disputing that at all. But that's kind of what he's already doing at Yumbo. Like it's, his, his life at Ineos actually wouldn't be that much different other than just emotionally. I guess that would be hard for us to digest since they're the richest team by far in the sport and they suck up all the resources and all the best riders. They can afford to pay someone like Mikhail Kievkowski to, they basically just warehoused him. It's kind of, people forget how good he was. He was a world champion at like 20, at like 23. It was not, he was a, like a premier one day rider. And he goes to Ineos just to kind of like ride on the front at Grand Tours. It, it, it's certainly hurt his one day career. He's not been the same rider since then. He's given up a lot to do that. Uh, yeah, the, the money's awesome. Like I, I, I would never tell a writer to take less money. Um, but it's kind of a bummer. Like if that happened to Woot Van Aert, who is in my opinion, one of the, I could be one of the great, great, great one day writers in this history of the sport, like Tom Boone and Fabian Cancellara level. Uh, yeah, it was just, that would be, it would be, it would be like beyond tragic from a sporting sense, but he shouldn't make decisions for us as fans and like historians of the sport. Like he should just do what's what's best for himself. Um, but it, this is also where the the argument kind of falls apart for me. Like if he really, let's just assume this isn't posturing. He's really serious about going to Ineos. I don't quite know why he would do that. The team actually doesn't have that good of a track record in recent years of developing writers. Like who's getting better? going to that team like Richard Carapace had a pretty good year this year but was it any better than his 2019 at Movistar I mean he won a grand tour at Movistar and he didn't win a grand tour at Enios um yeah I just can't really think about I can't think of any big names off the top of my head that have gone to that team and gotten better and they they've really underperformed I mean Egan Bernal won the 2019 tour that was impressive obviously but he kind of seemed to win it on like his own talent. He wasn't really helped by the team. Uh, Garrett Thomas would probably be the best example. He won the 2018 tour. He's the best example of like someone they've developed internally. And he was a one day rider. I mean, quote unquote, like Woot Van Aert. He was nowhere near as good as Woot Van Aert. It's actually kind of insulting to like mention them in the same sentence, but he, he was a promising, strong one day rider. I think if he would have stuck with one day classics, he Probably would have won a pair of Roubaix, maybe a Tour of Flanders, um, you know, many, many, many top tens, a couple podiums. Uh, 
but yeah, Ineos, the engine of that team is the Tour de France. That's what generates uh, attention and publicity in the UK. So that's where they push all their top riders. And he wins one Tour de France. Pretty good. But if you have the choice between like winning a Tour de France and winning five or six monuments, you're going to pick the monuments. That's the more prestigious and frankly, more fun career. You can be a little bit heavier. These are power races, not just watts per kilo. The training, you know, is hard. All the all the training's hard. These races are hard. But the the to slim down to win a grand tour, like uh to transform your body like Bradley Wiggins or Garrett Thomas or Lance Armstrong, it's it's so hard. It's so taxing. It's like sucks your soul out. It's not something I would I would push someone towards. If he has the the ability to be like a world class um, best writer in the world without doing that, he should absolutely do that. And as Garrett Thomas shows us, the success is not guaranteed. Garrett Thomas trains for months and months and months and then shows up and crashes out of a race. He's done it multiple times. Or he'll just have a bad moment. He's not paying attention. He's in the back of a neutral zone at the Giro d'Italia, hits a water bottle, and he's out. I mean, that, that's happened to him quite a bit, actually. So it kind of sucks. I, it's, for the lack of a better word, it, it's not a great life. It's not, I mean, Bradley Wiggins has talked in depth about this. And actually, after he won the Tour de France in 2012, he gained a bunch of weight and went back to trying to win one day classics. I mean, it's just like right there that tells us like how mentally tough that was and how unfulfilling that life can be. Uh, it, it, like someone like Tadej Pogachar, it's different because he's just naturally so light. It's like, yeah, I know every, yeah. He, maybe he's doping, maybe he's not. But let's just set that aside for a second. But he's just naturally so small, and his he he can stay light without really really trying. It's just easier for him. And you know he he's good at one day races. Like he could have won the world championships in Liege Bastogne Liege this year. But he can transform himself into a Grand Tour contender while still being able to win one days. So it's a much easier decision for him. And he's probably never going to be able to win a Pair Roubaix or Tour Flanders ever in his career. So the decision's already made for him. So yeah, that doesn't make a lot of sense. And if Woot really did want to do that, he's, he's A, said on the record that he doesn't want to do this. B, if he did want to do it, it's not clear that Ineos is a better team than Yumbo Visma. I mean, if anything, Yumbo Visma demonstrably showed in 2020 they're the better team. Like they get better performances out of each rider. They can, they seem to have superior training, superior nutrition. Uh, yeah, it's not, it's not clear to me why you would make that move. And also, I mean, the most important part is they've signed Tom Pitcock, who is a cyclocross U23 world champion. People love this guy. I'm not quite sure why. Like, he doesn't have that many good, he's won like a super prestige cross race. At the senior level, he has like not that many good results. He's a year older than Remco Evenepoel, less than a year younger than Tadej Bogachar. So, in another era, maybe he would have been a superstar, like star of the future. But right now, all our stars are about his age, and he actually seems to be behind his peers, where he's still racing. He's like just coming out of the U23 ranks when everyone else that age who is as talented as him is winning major, major like elite events. Uh, but let's just let's just assume he becomes a classic star. He he's very talented. He'll probably be quite good. 
why would Woot Van Art want to share the spotlight with him, the classic spotlight? And I, I don't know where these rumors are coming from, but people are saying Matthew Vanderpool is going to join Ineos as well. Vanderpool and Woot will never be on the same team. They're huge rivals. They are smart enough to know that they shouldn't be on the same team, that that would hurt both of their chances at success. So, uh, and the last point is even if he wanted to be a, a Grand Tour contender, there's a lot of great, great Grand Tour hopefuls on Indios under the age of 30. I mean, they don't have like, I've written and talked extensively about this. I don't think they have like a grade A Grand Tour killer uh, like they used to have with Chris Room or Garrett Thomas. Thomas is just getting old. He's, he's too old, in my opinion, to contend at big, big Grand Tours like the Tour de France. Um, but I mean, think about like Teo Gegenhardt, Egan Bernal, Egan Bernal, Egan Bernal, I think is quite good, but I think that back injury is going to be a big, big problem. Not people aren't really talking about it, but there's no way he's going to be competitive in 2021. So let's even take him out. But it's like, you still have Teo Gegenhardt, Richard Carapaz, Pavel Sivakov. And I'm, I'm just, I'm not seeing Simon Yates and even Sosa. Those last two are like, Never going to win a Grand Tour. Simon Yates have, has won one, but I don't think he'll win another one. And even Sosa has really struggled this year. I don't see him being complete enough. But if we just like those are good riders, those are really talented riders. Uh, there's a lot of them. A few of them will probably never even lead a Grand Tour on Ineos because they're so stacked. And then they have projects like Philippe Ogana and Rowan Dennis, who they could try to turn into Grand Tour riders. And these are all young guys. So I don't see a ton of openings there. It's definitely not a place where you'd want to go to like dip your toes in a Grand Tour racing. It's a place you should go if you want to get paid a crap ton of money to set pace on the front of a Peloton. I, I don't know why Woot Van Aert would want to do that. Uh, even though he already does uh, do that a little bit at Yumbo. But if we look at his own team, Yumbo Visma, they, uh, they're quite good. I mean, they've, they have like, let's just, Stephen Kreuzweg, Tom Dumoulin, Primoz Roglic, all very good, very good riders. Two of them, I'd say Dumoulin and Roglic, are contenders for the 2021 Tour de France, but these are older guys. I mean, Roglic is, I believe, 31. Kreuzweg is 32. Dumoulin's 30. They don't have many Grand Tour aces under the age of 30. I mean, they have projects like Sepkus and George Bennett, but I, I know this is going to like upset a lot of people. Those guys are never going to win Grand Tours. They just don't have the time-trialing prowess to do it. I mean, just think about the tour this year. There was some of the fewest individual time trial kilometers in like recent memory. And Sepkus, think about what he would have lost on that stage 20 time trial. Like he would have lost about four or five minutes, you know, if, if he was having a good day. So he would just have to put so much time in it, everybody, to be competitive. And I mean, we look at this year's, there's 58 kilometers of time trialing in the 2021 Tour de France. Like, no way. There's no way he could compete. Same thing with George Bennett. And it's, it's not just specific to these two. This has been happening since, like, if you remember, like, Casa Grande and stuff back in the 90s. Like, the media, because they're, they're so visible. And they're always, they look so good at the front of the peloton on climbs. And we're like, oh, these guys are going to win Grand Tours. But it's just not going to happen. It, it almost never happens. I mean, Carlos Sastra is, like, the big, big exception here. But he, he, was a, he was a better time trialist than people remember. He had a really good time trial in that 2008 Tour de France. And then, yeah, I, I can't really, you can't really name that many one-off climber Tour de France winners. It, it just like never happens. I mean, obviously like Marco Pantani, but 
his hermeticurt was like at 60 and he was like full of vpo and his time trial was actually pretty good uh better than people remember so if he, yeah even if he wanted to be a grand tour winner yumbo visma is the place to be the only reason i would if we assume this is legitimate interest in Ineos, really money's the only reason to go and you know if it's the difference between let's just say Ineos pays him 10 million dollars a year us dollars a year and Yumbo offers him $3 million. $3 million is a lot. That's a lot of money. I mean, I think Peter Sagan makes between 4 and $5 million. So three would be up there. And Chris Froome's, I think, on $4 million a year. Or I mean, he's going to be on €5 million Euros a year at Israel Cycling Academy. So that's close to $6 million US dollars. So that's, he's actually probably the highest paid rider of all time. Lance Armstrong would make more, but not from salary from the team. I read in his prime he was making like twenty five to thirty million dollars a year. Uh, I would get, I think around like maybe a million of that was from his salary, and he would, but he was one of the rare rare cyclists that was able to pull in significant endorsement revenue. Uh, there's not many even big stars. I mean, Peter Sagan is a huge star, and he's not that well known outside. You there's not many people who aren't cycling fans that know who he is. And even Tom Boonen, big star in Belgium, not that well known to the general public, not like a Messi or a Ronaldo. Um, and that's where, that's where salary becomes so important here because your earning potential outside of the sport, outside of just being paid by your employer, isn't great. I mean, some of these guys are maybe making like low seven figures with endorsement deals, but you couldn't make up a big, big goal. You, you, I don't think you could make 10 million a year from endorsement, unless you're a super superstar like Lance Armstrong. So just keep that in mind when we're talking about rider salaries. So if the offers are like three million US dollars, I'm just pulling 10 out of out of nowhere, out of a hat. I've just made that up. Um, and we have a seven million dollar a year delta. He, he kind of ha- he I, I would say he has to do that because it's just that's a little life changing amount of money. I mean, let's say he does a three five let's say five year deal. $7 million difference. That's $35 million pre-tax dollars. And, and he lives, I believe he lives in Monaco, so almost all of that will be untaxed. Just, just the difference in contracts would be $35 million. I mean, you can't turn that down. That's, that's, genera- that's like the foundation for generational wealth, if managed correctly. I, that would be insane, insane to walk away from. And I know people don't want to hear this. They Vela News would would like have a conniption if if they heard me talking this way. Where it's like we they, oh, he shouldn't do that. It's bad for the sport. It's boring. But hey, these guys have to. They have to put their financial futures first. Um, it would suck. It would it would totally suck. I don't disagree with that. But I would if I was an advisor to him, I would say absolutely take more. Take the money. I mean, if Yumbo cheaps out. Like screw him! Like you don't. He doesn't owe anything to Yumbo Visma. He they sh- they should have to pay the market rate for his services, uh, and the market rate is is whatever someone's willing to pay him. I mean, Jim Radcliffe. It, it's not. It, I would say it's not impossible for him to throw out a crazy figure like ten million dollars. If we remember, they did they did uh, find some frugality when it came to Chris Froome. They didn't match that basically twenty five million euros over five years is what he was offered from Israel Startup, and they passed, which in my mind is smart because they know he can't produce anymore. But Uvin Art's one of the rare writers where almost any salary figure is worth it because he can win such a wide variety of races. He can win the biggest one-day races in the world, 
and he can work for you at Grand Tours. He doesn't seem to mind it. Just Matthew Vanderpool is his counterparty contemporary has, has come on the record saying like, there's no way I'm working for somebody at a grand tour. Like that's insane. I'm a big champion. I don't have to do that. And like 99 out of a hundred riders like that would think that way. So Woods incredibly unique in that he doesn't seem to mind working for riders. Uh, and he's also one of the, I've never really seen anyone who could do that much work, um, even on a climbing stage and he's not even a climber and then win sprint stages. So that type of versatility as well as just his star power. I mean, he's, he's Belgian, so Belgium's like one of the biggest road cycling countries in the world. Uh, huge superstar potential there, like Tom Boonen-esque star potential. It, yeah, it makes it worth it. And Richard, Richard Pluga, the team manager at Yambo Visma, uh, he's, he's a good guy. But he runs that team, you know, like a business. Like if I could see the dollar amount getting high enough and he just passes. In my opinion, he, sh- he shouldn't do that. He should sign Woot and figure out the rest of the team later. But that's not really how he approaches the team. He definitely puts the team first. And I, the, the feeling I get is that no one is above the team. So, yeah, it, it bums me out. But I could see this breaking in a way where he gets what he sees as a low ball offer from Yumbo. And Enios gives him the offer he wants. And he goes... Uh, it would, yeah, it would be a total bummer, but it it could happen. We have to be prepared for that possibility, guys. Also, I don't know where this rumor is coming from. I think it's just cycling journalists saying things to entertain themselves. But there's a theory that Matthew Vanderpool is going to join Ineos as well, like in 2022. I've seen no evidence of this. And just kind of the proof is in the text where Vanderpool says, I would never work for anyone at a Grand Tour. Ineos a prerequisite for joining that team as a rider like that is you have to work for a rider. The only way it works for them financially is for you to work for the Grand Tour riders in Grand Tours. They, they can't have you there just as dead weight. And, I mean, that's what makes Woot unique. So, I mean, it's pretty safe to assume that, that that's just not going to mesh. Those two mentalities are never going to align. And I'm not dragging Vanderpool here. I, I think he's well within his right to say he's not going to work for anybody. It's, to me, it's a little... I don't totally love that Woot Van Aert works. It's super cool to see, and it's really impressive, like jaw-dropping impressive. But it does make, I, I think that it's hard to sustain. You kind of have to change your body to sit on the front at steady wattages like that. And in my, you know, just from what I observed with like Mikhail Kiyofkoski, I think it does sap your, like that snap you need to win one-day races. So I don't love it in that sense. And I, I kind of agree with Vanderpool there. That kind of takes me to my next point where um, Vanderpool and Woot and Tom Pitcock all raced the Namur, Namur World Cup in Belgium this weekend. Uh, it was awesome. It was a really cool race. Uh, Vander- Pitcock was off the front the whole time and then Vanderpool um, reeled him in. And then it was just like a classic Woot-Vanderpool uh, cross battle. Vanderpool almost always kind of like Vanderpool beats him like almost all the time in cross. And then, but there was like four years, I think it was three or four years where Woot would, would like lose to him throughout the entire year and then beat him at world championships. But um, I mean, both of them, both of them did a great job. Woot did a great job. He finished like three seconds behind Vanderpool and then Pickock was a few seconds behind him. But it, so two points here, that's not great for the sport of cross that you have two professional road cyclists like parachuting into your biggest race 
and dominating. It's like, well, the rest, think of it, the rest of those guys who are finishing like Pitcock's a little bit different because he's so young and it's a really good result for him, but he's going over the road pretty much. If he's joining Enios, he's joining Enios in like a week in 2021. So he's going to be a full-time road cyclist. Enios is probably not even going to let him race cross. That's a, that's also another thing with the whoop point where Enios is much more strict than Yumbo Visma. They're not going to let Woot Van Aert race cross in the offseason if he's on that team. So I'd say Pitcock's cross career is probably done if he's going to Enios to race on the road. Uh, but So we essentially have like three road cyclists dominating full-time cross racers. Like these guys don't really race on the road. Like their whole life is these few months and they're getting beat by these guys who are doing it in their offseason. So it's not... it, it that's. Cross is in a tricky, tricky spot where it's like, yes, it's good to get the publicity from Woot Van Aert and Matthew Vanderpool winning these events. But to me, it, it kind of, I've, I used to be into cross before the rise of Vanderpool and Woot Van Aert because it was like exciting and different people would win and every week. But since they've, since they've come to age, come of age, like literally no one else wins. And they've had a few other winners since those guys went to the road a little bit, but they'll still just, just drop in. I mean, Matthew Vanderpool won a big race today. I mean, think about that. Like, this is his offseason, and he's winning huge cross races. So not great for the sport, uh, in my opinion. But it's, I also think it's bad for Vanderpool and Wu. It's just way too much racing. They should be – an athlete's body, you can't just be, like, hitting those peak, peak, peak performances all the time. And then cross is just – it's brutal. It's, like, all, all high, high rev, just you're sprinting. You're constantly sprinting. You're always the limit. That's not what – no, no trainer would argue that's what you should be doing in your offseason. You should be doing, like, low intensity. You should be, A, letting your body recover from your hard season and preparing for another hard season that's right around the corner. And you should be doing low intensity work. I mean, it's just, it's crazy. It's crazy to me that their teams are letting them do this. I mean, Woot's schedule is a lot more, a lot more measured. It, it, it kind of makes sense. If you squint, you could, it could kind of make sense where it's like, okay, this guy's compelled to race. This is going to make him happy. He's got to ride his bike anyway. He's getting his intervals in doing cross. But Matthew Vanderpool, to me, this is like, it's like very hubristic. I think, I think he's going to have a disappointing road season because of this. He's just way, he's overloading the schedule way too much. And as we saw before COVID, he was really struggling at the beginning of the last road season. I think the only thing that saved him was the forced break due to COVID. It was like five months of no racing. And then he looks great. When he comes back, I, oh God, I wonder what happened there. What was the difference? Yeah, it was the break. Um, and then he actually was, I, in the newsletter on Friday, I put out some examples of results. He was not a good sprinter in 20. He was like one of the best sprinters in the world in 2019, like 1700 watts for 20, 30 seconds, which is like almost unbeatable. And then I, I don't think he won a single bunch sprint. He didn't even really contest. He got fifth a few times at the Bink Bank Tour in bunch sprints. And, but the only stages he won at Terreno, Terreno Adriatico and Bink Bank Tour were solo, like long, solo, strong efforts. So, yeah, I mean, just from the outside, he did, he obviously won Flanders in a two-up sprint against Van Art. So, yeah, like, I'm not going to get a lot of traction criticizing his year here. But that, that's, a, that's a strong sprint. That you don't win Flanders with a fast sprint after seven hours of hard racing. 
So it did look like a little bit of his, his like top end was taken off there. And I would keep an eye on that to see if that's a trend. And these guys are like heavily favored. Both Van Aert and Vanderpool are heavily favored to win the spring classics. But they're racing against like Casper Askren, who's like doing nothing but training for these spring classics, or Oliver Nason, or Mads Pedersen, a world champion last year. So, I mean, the, the odds are totally out of whack. So I'm, I'm sprinkling some small bets on guys like Pedersen, Nason, Askren, uh, even Florian Seneschel, and as a way to kind of like short Vanderpool and Van Aert, who I think are specifically Vanderpool with this crazy triple schedule. I don't know who signed off on this. Probably no one. I mean, he's, he rides for a small team, small road team. He's able to call his own shots. But that road team's now, in, you know, they're a, they have to ride like a lot of the World Tour schedule because they did so well last year. He's gonna, it's going to be a completely crazy year for him, trying to race mountain bike, road, trying to do cross in his offseason, and then mountain bike and road concurrently. Uh, and then going to the Tour de France and trying to win the mountain bike in the Olympics, I think he's gonna. I think he's really gonna struggle next year. Um, if he looks, he could eat. But I mean, keep in mind he could crush it again. And I look like an idiot, but that that's just uh, it comes from a place of love. I I think both of these guys are like could be two of the best one day riders ever ever. So it makes it would make me sad if if they never quite achieve those those heights. It because they're uh, they're trying to do too much and maybe they're not getting the advice they need um, internally on how to make those hard decisions. So if we remember, like Zinnick Stebar and Lars Boom were the Vanderpool and Van Art of their age. Um, I mean, Lars Boom won like four or five cross world championships, and then when they went to the road, they actually neither have achieved that much success on the road, which shows you how which. In my in my opinion, should be like Tom Pitcock when he says, "I want to win three world championships, mountain bike, road, and cross." It's like, hey, dude, Lars Boom and Zinnick Stebar were like better, much better than you in cross, and they've really struggled on the road. I mean, not struggled, but they're not winning that much on the road because uh, it shows you how hard the road is. There's a lot of good riders. It doesn't matter if you're if you've won a few cross races. So that should be. But when they started racing on the road, they they kind of stopped and crossed. They would jump into a few races and they would get their butt kicked because it's so hard. Cross is so hard and they would probably be in the middle of their off season. So they, they should definitely chill out. Um, a few other, just one other thing is I've seen a bunch of talk about, this is like another Vela News article blitz today where it's like, should, be, should there be a salary cap in pro cycling? Because now Woot could go to Ineos for, you know, name a number, 10, 20 million euros a year you know it could be anything because there's no salary cap um it's not it's the question is is kind of it's kind of silly because it shouldn't be should there be a salary cap in pro cycling it's would a salary cap help pro cycling probably it probably would but there's no salary cap button you can press it's like the uci can't just implement a salary cap these are incredibly complex like highly expensive and like the legality of them is, is fuzzy. I mean, if you think about salary caps, there's really only two examples in the whole world. It's the NBA and the NFL, because both of those leagues have employed incredibly expensive attorneys and lobbyists to, to have Congress kind of manipulate the law for them so that they can 
get away with wage suppression, which is what it is. Uh, but they also, I mean, they also have the buy-in from the players. They've collectively bargained an agreement to share revenues um, equally amongst the franchises. And they just, everyone, all the parties involved figure it's for the best, um, for all their, in their best interest. It probably is. But the key word there is they're sharing revenues. It's a, just basically a revenue share. That's what a salary cap is. That they say, well, you can't spend more. 40% of the league's reg- revenue will go to salary. I'm just making up that 40%. We'll go to sal- player salary. And then each team is capped at this amount where they'll, they're splitting up revenue they're all making together. The problem in cycling is there's no revenue. So there's nothing to cap. Or UEFA has the financial fair play rules where they say, if you want to play in this one tournament, you, your club's finances, can, your expenses cannot exceed your revenue. But that, that's another problem where it creates kind of a softer cap that's, that's more in line with the law. They're not going to get the European union isn't going to take them to court and say, well, you're suppressing these players' wages because Messi could make 500 million euros a year instead of 100 million. But the financial fair play allows them kind of a roundabout way to enforce salaries because A, they say, well, we're not enforcing your salary. You could just make more money as a club and pay the players more. But B, if, if you're in violation of it, you just can't play in this tournament. It's not, we're not telling you you can't do it. It's just a prerequisite. So, you know, let's just say the Tour de France could say to ride in the Tour, exceed, you can't, this wouldn't, if you're starting, it wouldn't work because there's no revenue in cycling. There's there's nothing to cap. They can't, if you tried to say, well, you can't pay Chris Froome more than this amount, Chris Froome could just take that organization to court and he's going to win because the court would say, yeah, you can't suppress this guy's wages. Like, who are you to say Ineos can't pay them more money? This it's, it's a silly thing. I it really frustrates me to see it because no one ever brings up the examples of like, hey, yeah, why does this only exist in one or two cases in the world? Because it would never hold up in a European court, and especially like who's going to enforce this? Like who's enforcing the salary cap? The UCI they don't have the resources to do that. And so, yeah, we should all keep this when we're reading these pieces and we're thinking, oh, yeah, Ineo shouldn't be able to sign Wood at this amount. This is like highly complicated. It's never going to happen. It can't happen. It can't happen unless there's revenues to share, which is a long, long, long way down the road. No one can come in and tell Ineos, you can't spend more than $15 million a year on, on rider wages, because what would be the legal mechanism to enforce that? You, that's an, that's an, that's illegal. You can't tell someone they can't spend more money, because then Apple and Google could say, "Well, let's agree not to pay our engineers more than this," and then the engineers could take them to court and say, "You're colluding. Two organizations are colluding to suppress our wages," and they would win. The courts don't view that sports teams to be any different than a regular employer so that that's where this gets complicated and like honestly none of this is even it's not even worth having the conversation because it's just simply not going to happen we have to just kind of move forward with the framework we're in where yeah Enios could offer wood a ton of money and he could go <laughs> there's there's nothing we can do about it the, the only mechanism to for kind of a, a sporting correction is that if a writer says like well there's just simply too many good riders on that team. Like I won't get any opportunities. Or why would I want to share a leadership role with another classic star? And I can make 
a lot of money somewhere else. So that's my rant on salary caps. All right, well, uh, have a great week. When uh, I think I'm gonna, well, I'm not gonna release a podcast between uh, Christmas and New Year's just because everyone's gonna be busy doing other things. But when we come back from the New Year's, we'll have an interview with Keegan Swerble about how he went. It's kind of a crazy, it's a pretty amazing story. How he was like riding like a beat up bike and was essentially unemployed. Uh, grabbed a few like really impressive Strava segments and then was racing professionally in Europe like a week later. So we'll have him on the podcast on the next podcast to talk about that. But uh, have a great, have a great holiday season and I'll talk to you next year.